0: Please remain standing for our scripture lesson, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And it picks up after from the end of chapter 3, reminding us that we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God.
1: Amen, dear saints. You may be seated. After a one-week hiatus where Leslie and I enjoyed a lovely time in Urbana at our sister church there, Covenant Fellowship Church, last Sunday, we're back in our Second Corinthians series. But before we go into it... As always, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the written word, the preached word, and the incarnate word. Thank you that all of them are perfect, and they culminate in Jesus, the glorious one. Feed us him today, we pray. Fill us with your spirit. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So God calls on all his redeemed, elect, saved, sanctified Christian church members to be honest and honorable. But he especially calls on those that God sends to the church as the church's pastors to be scrupulously honest and honorable. In fact, in Titus 1-7, we're called to be above reproach. Our words have to be truthful, and we have to avoid that Falsehood that is so characteristic of, of religion and the world. And this honesty has to characterize not only our preaching and our teaching, but even our hearts and our characters and our lives. And as you can imagine, that is a high and holy calling. On top of that, it is impossible in oneself to achieve such a calling without the miraculous supernatural work of God's Holy Spirit superintending the ministry that then blesses the rest of the church. Indeed, I think today's text expresses this in some of the most graphic tones. It is requisite for all true church ministers of the gospel to be honest And, of course, that's a dangerous thing. I mean, on the face of it, you would think honesty is something everybody would want, but it's not true. Sinners actually want dishonest ministers. You know, you can ask yourself, why do false churches seem to thrive, if you will? And the reason is that people actually want that stuff. But that is irrespective. That is not to be our concern. Our concern is to be honest and forthright. And careful. And none of that is possible without that miraculous work of God's grace in our hearts, whereby we are caused to love the Lord Jesus Christ to such an extent that we would rather perish, die, be martyred, shot, killed, persecuted, tortured to death, than to deny our blessed Redeemer and to speak lies and falsehoods. That's how serious it is. Therefore, Let's make it our gospel goal today, and this applies not just to ministers or to prospective pastors, but to all the church, to procure and hear honest ministers in Christ's true church. And, of course, for our church, that's especially an issue, isn't it? Because you're in the process of procuring a new minister. With this in mind, we're going to be studying today 2 Corinthians 4 one to four. <clears throat> Title of the sermon Honest Ministers the doctrine a bit of an unusual doctrine, but it is Honest Ministers Scrape the Foundation of True Religion. By this I mean What they do, what we do, is we come to the essentials, the bare realities, the historical facts and the glorious truth of the gospel, and we work there all the time. Some of you are Caterpillar people, you understand, bulldozers. We're scraping the foundation of the true religion. We're not up here in some ethereal realm. We're right down there where it really matters. And so we're constantly coming back to the truth, the one true faith, and always keeping an eye on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, in doing this, we don't occupy ourselves with the things, the passions, and the idolatries of the world. Instead, we're constantly bringing God's people back to Jesus, the only one that can do them any good. And we're bringing ourselves back to him. He is the bedrock of gospel truth. Therefore, there is, let's seek to better understand just why and how honest ministers scrape the foundation of true religion. First, we do not engage in conventional religious marketing. Now, by this I mean that the authentic church minister of the gospel does not take the bait of standard religion and the practices and causes of standard religion and the world. And it's all out there. The true minister avoids the bait doesn't take it. What is accepted as ordinary and to be expected by most religious societies, including many Christians, is to be scrupulously avoided by faithful Christ-honoring ministers of the gospel. Indeed, most of these things boil down to money, dollars, and cents. Not all, but most of it. Always keep that in mind. It's either God or Mammon, Christ or money. Bottom line, if the bulk of the religious world thinks that something is a good idea, or is a worthy endeavor for the church to get involved in, guess what? It probably isn't. And that is a very important principle. Every time an idolatry comes up in the religious world, or even in the world generally culture, the perceptive wise minister immediately identifies that and is aware of it, the pressure that's going to bring, the, the power that those idolatries have, and teaches the people of God to resist it and avoid it. Now, this sort of situation is largely what Paul's getting at in verse 2a, which is a pretty remarkable text. But the apostle is also dealing not only with dollars and cents and people getting rich on religion, But doctrine, the teachings of the scripture, the teachings of the most holy faith, which we just read in our Nicene Creed earlier today. Because people that prevaricate in the the name of religion or tell lies thereof are seeking one or both of two things every time. And you always have to be aware of this. It's either money or power. If it's money, their desire is to fleece God's sheep of what they have. If it's power, it's a craving to rob them through false doctrine of the great treasure of Jesus Christ himself and the glorious gospel. So it's always money or power that's the problem, not only in the world but in the religious world. So in teaching us this, this is coming from this text today, it's very helpful, especially in the world we live in. We do not engage in conventional religious marketing. Instead, we devote ourselves to the truth, Jesus. Now, commitment to the truth, Christ, involves two principal practical things in real Christ-called ministers of the gospel. And as you call your next pastor, be looking for these convictions. First, prayer... And secondly, preaching of the gospel of God's grace and the Lord Jesus Christ; those are the two basic roles that God has called all of His pastors to do: prayer for the sheep of the flock, and beyond that, the presbytery and others, and preaching. That's what was happening in the book of Acts. You remember that in chapter 6, I believe it was, where the apostles didn't want to be taken up waiting on tables so they get deacons, so that they could devote themselves to the word of God and prayer. And that's what's important in the ministry, and don't ever forget it. Everything else is subordinate to these two primary tasks— Now, the world of conventional religion comes to all of us, not just young pastors. And I experienced this as a younger pastor. Still, No, I'm not young anymore. But anyway, as a young pastor, you have to do this. You have to do that. You have to be relevant to the community. That's wrong. At worst, that is a gross error. And at best, it is a legitimate mistake. In fact, just as soon as you try to become relevant to the community, you've lost all your relevance, and especially in God's eyes, let alone the world, who can see through it very easily. Now, Christ must be held on to us, not just the ministers, but the whole church, with all our hearts at all costs. Anything that would drag us away from these principal duties of prayer and preaching, anything, must be resisted and rejected. In fact, it has to be self-consciously so. And that's a good teaching for any, um, anyone practicing or preparing for the pastoral ministry or the church that is seeking a minister. Jesus did not send his church ministers to earth principally to do good works. He sent us here To preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that, in so doing, we teach the church and train the church to do the work of the ministry, whereby they do good works. Good works are important, and we do those out of love for God, but we aren't called here to do a bunch of good works. Ministers are called to pray and to preach. and That is the definition of success or failure. So let's look at these interesting verses 1 to 4, chapter four, Second Corinthians, and discern together the motivation of honest ministers. Now, you've heard me often say that money is the clearest gauge of the heart, and it is, but motivation is right up there too. Everything we do is driven by our impulse behind why we do it. Dishonest people and dishonest ministers, in particular, are motivated by sin, and this sin can take any number of forms. Honest, regenerate Christians and honest, regenerate ministers are motivated by honor. They want to glorify their triune God, and everything they do, they wish to promote the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and lift up his glorious name before the church and the world. Let us now study this thrilling subject of the motivation of honest ministers. I'm going to give you three, as usual, from this text. The first one, out of verse 1, is the invincibility of God. I-N-V-I-N-C-I-B-I-L-I-T-Y. And children, that just means unbeatableness of God. God cannot be beaten. The invincibility of God. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. So isn't that interesting that Paul would say that? He's going to detail some great difficulties in chapter 4, verses 8 to 12, and other places. And he already has talked about how hard and impossible this work is. But here he's teaching that truly called gospel church ministers, who, by the way, are the authentic apostolic succession of the apostles themselves all the way down to today, are only sustained in their office, in their ministry, by the mercy of God. God's mercy alone keeps us in this office and gives us the strength and the ability to do it. Sunday to Sunday, month to month, year to year, <clears throat> decade to decade. And that is because this mercy is so great that it causes us not to lose heart. Obviously, we would lose heart doing an impossible labor if it wasn't for the mercy of God doing a marvelous work. The power of God is so indomitable or unconquerable that even the otherwise entirely frail nature of gospel ministry being done through fallen human beings cannot fail. In other words, what this text is telling us is that despite all the obvious handicaps of our fallenness, the ministry cannot and will not fail when it's done in God's power and spirit by those who are truly called to do it. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that this precludes the existence of these gigantic challenges to gospel ministry. And as I mentioned, Lord willing, we'll be looking at that in verses 8 to 12 sometime later. But when a man is called to invest himself in a cause that absolutely cannot be thwarted, overthrown, stopped, or defeated, this by no means implies that it will be easy or even humanly achievable. It takes a miraculous work of God's spirit. But it is great encouragement to remain faithful in the endeavor, and that cause is the kingdom church gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the motivation of honest ministers? It's the invincibility of God. In other words, we can't fail. Not, we can't. It's impossible. Can't fail. And, verse 2, the fear of God. And this is the key verse. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Wow. The, the principal motivation behind true pastors, ministers, and parishioners who hear them is the fear of God. And absolutely conversely, the absence of the fear of man. If we really fear God, we will not fear man. Ultimately, every time I preach a sermon, dears, I'm not preaching it principally to or for you. I'm preaching a sermon for the triune God himself, who loves gospel sermons. And I do it for his glory, because I fear him. And if I was to tell you lies and falsehoods, it would be a fearful thing to be in, a position to be in. And so it's the fear of God that drives us. And the reason Paul could say what he does here in this amazing verse 2 is because he was so convinced of the existence of, the righteousness of, the holiness of, the power of the one true and only God, that his, Paul's representation of God to the church and the world had to and would, by the miraculous power of God, accord with these divine characteristics and attributes. So Paul could actually be in accord, not perfectly like God, but in truth, in accord with them. How can that be in fallen sinful men called to do the church's gospel ministry? Well, by the sovereign miraculous grace of God in Christ. Now, dear saints, the Apostle Paul, in the 50's A.D. knew just like we do today that there were, even then, many religious charlatans, game players, shell game operators, clowns, and fanatics abroad. And they certainly are still out today making a mockery of religion. And he knew that this would make people skeptical of even an honorable minister like Paul, even as it's true today of faithful pastors these days. But this did not stop the apostle at all. It didn't discourage him one bit. It didn't keep him from doing his gospel ministry. It didn't prevent him from speaking the truth and even applying the principles to himself and to all truly called ministers throughout the entire history of the church. So when we refer to the fear of God, we must always cite as well the love of God, because that is two sides of the same spiritual coin, the love of God and the fear of God. A faithful, Spirit-filled, Christ-loving, Reformed church, which by God's grace you are, listen to this, this is key and it's ancillary but important flowing from this doctrine. A faithful, spirit-filled, Christ-loving, reformed church is the greatest institutional blessing Almighty God would give any city, county, community, nation, or world. Never take it for granted. They're rare, they're hard to find, They're precious. They should be treasured. We have to fight for it. We have to maintain it. We have to be vigilant, diligent, prayerful, and watchful. We have to go on the offensive to maintain it. There's a good reason why they're so rare, dears. The other way is easy. You can find one on any street corner. But go looking for a faithful, reformed church that boldly proclaims Jesus Christ, and you will find that it's not so easy to find. It's a great and treasured possession, and we need to be very careful to maintain it. And in so doing, like Paul, we renounce boldly all religious fraud and cheating and cunning and deceit, we renounce it, and we stay faithful to Jesus and all the great and glorious ordinary means of grace, namely preaching, sacraments, and prayer. That's the key to a healthy, biblical church. We don't need all the extras. The motivation of honest ministers, the invincibility of God, the fear of God, and finally, The sovereignty of God, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. First of all, notice this wonderful language. Jesus Christ is the perfect and exact image of God, verse 4c, who is seen by faith through the glorious gospel mirror of the preaching done by Christ's true ministers, which is the context of this particular passage. Now, it is true, as we know from Galatians, that false people can preach the gospel too. And even Paul was able to rejoice even then. But here, we're talking about authentic ministers of the gospel. Now, Paul's doctrine here in verses 3 and 4 is this. The truth of our preaching is made explicit through the historical redemptive facts of the gospel itself, which we proclaim to people, and that despite this proclamation of the undeniable truthfulness of the gospel claims, some people do not and in some cases may never see it with the eyes of their faith. Now, when people don't embrace the gospel, is it the fault of the preacher? No. Is it the fault of God, God forbid? No. Ultimately, is it the fault of the old snake, the devil, the one who blinds the minds of unbelievers? Ultimately, no. At the end of the day, it is the fault of recalcitrant, unbelieving, hardened sinners who will not see the glorious truth of the gospel. Now look at what people are missing when that happens from this text, when they don't believe the preaching of the good news, particularly done by honest ministers, as this text is making clear. They do not see, quote, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Think about that. They do not see... The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, verse 4b. So, from our point of view, how are we to handle that? What are we to do about it? We are to do the same thing the Apostle Paul did, namely, continue to faithfully press on with the same glorious ministry and gospel proclamation and preaching with those precious means of grace before us, and do that irrespective of results, not concerned about numbers or results of the world and its, its perspective. We trust a sovereign King Jesus. As always, let's do some application this morning and appreciate why honest ministers are necessary for the church and the world. Recently, we've been studying the J. Gresham Machen book in um, the stimulus. It's really good. And 100 years ago, J. Gresham Machen was making the point several times that the gospel in his day was very unpopular. Well, guess what? It's still very unpopular. And honorable ministers of the faithful church are also extremely out of favor with the world and the religion of the world in general, if you haven't noticed that. But who cares, ultimately? I mean, And I mean that seriously. Should any of that really discourage us? Should that cause us to be weeping or sad or wringing our hands or causing us any consternation at all? Answer, no. Not at all. Doesn't mean we don't care. Doesn't mean we aren't aware of it. But it's not going to affect us. I like a recent quote i shared with some of you who get my daily devotions, and it comes from Thomas Watson, and I'm quoting him. He said, Zeal, encountering difficulty, is emboldened by opposition and tramples upon danger. Let us now learn the probably unexpected reasons why honest ministers are necessary for the church and the world. Think about this. Why are they necessary? First... Because God calls his elect through them. I'm going to quote Titus 1 1 to 3, which is on your outline there. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So, to say it in our parlance, in relation to this particular subpoint, the church and the world need honest ministers so that God's elect would be called unto him through Jesus Christ and placed in faithful churches. Somebody might say, well, God could do that on his own. Yes, he could, but he uses means and he uses you. And this is how he does it. Honest and honorable ministers are necessary. This is obviously in Paul's mind here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I would say it's in the minds of all the other scripture writers, Old and New Testaments too, and all of their ministrations. Somebody might say, well, we do not know who the elect are. And that statement is not only absolutely and completely true, it's also good that we do not know who the elect are. Because that causes us to universally broadcast the gospel to all creatures, all human beings everywhere, irrespective of who they are, what they look like, what they believe in, where they're coming from, what their color is, what their nationality is, what language they speak, anything else. We give it a complete blanket spreading of the glorious gospel of Jesus. It goes to everyone. And true and faithful ministers and parishioners do not even attempt to discriminate with regard to any people. Indeed, the redeemed church, ironically, the faithful church, is got a secret for you, the only true, fair community on earth. Okay? It really is. And... It is a special privilege for us to be so. Why honest ministers are necessary for the church and the world? Because God calls his elect through them, and this is interesting, and their role is to promote the redeemed saints' highest good in Christ. My task as your pastor is to take more care to forward the good and welfare of all of you who show yourselves to be covenantally faithful to Jesus, show evidence of that love for Jesus Christ as members of his church. My calling is to take more care for you that show that evidence than it is for doing anything else except universally preaching the gospel. Are you hearing that? This is a little counterculture, a little revolutionary. It's following the pattern of Jesus Christ who spent most of the quality of his time with those who really cared, those who were most serious, those who showed the most evidence of faithfulness and love for him. Check out the record. And not only Jesus, but all the other ministers do it too. That's really important. To explain, God himself is more concerned for his poor, humble, sincere, and yet still sinful, true church lambs, big or small, young or old, than he is for anyone else in the world. You might be saying, Pastor, where do you get that? Well, listen to these words from 2 Timothy 2.10, also referenced on your outline. Therefore, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You see that? That's how ministry is done, by the way. It's true. If any of you want to love Jesus Christ with all your hearts, and you want to grow in that, I and my brothers and sisters who are in that role to serve, I am here to serve you, to help you. But there's coming back full circle to our call to worship today. How can we love the one we don't know? And how can we know him without a preacher, as per Romans 10? And what is the preacher's message? That Jesus Christ <clears throat> came to earth to shed his blood, not for good people, but for sinners, and to rise on third day for their justification. What is our response to be. Faith in that gospel, love for God, growing and wonderful nurturing of that love and service and obedience. Beloved, honest ministers are here to call and serve God's special people. Let the true church be thankful for honest ministers. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for honest ministers. You've always called them over the entire history of the church, and you always will But uh, they um, they they will serve you, irrespective of uh, any other considerations. But that's only because of your superintending grace and mercy and marvelous work in them. We pray that as that ministry is done, gospel is preached, sacraments administered, prayers offered, you would build up your saints in the most holy faith. That they themselves would be the ministers of the church too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.